0: Thanks, Tim. Okay, a couple of announcements out of the bulletin. There's a lot in there. I'll let you read it, but some that are important right now. One is um, the women's ministry is doing a coat drive. It's that time of the year where we have people that need coats, and so if you have coats that are clean and are in good order, bring them. You can see the collection deadline is Friday, October 21st. We've already got a pretty good collection, so consider that giving up old coats. And on the back at the very top, we have the inquirer's class today. If you are new and want to learn about our church, uh, or if you've been around a long time and wondering why we do the crazy things that we do, then you can um, come to that. Lunch is provided. It's uh, the first step towards becoming a member, but it's not a requirement. It's just a time that we sit down and go through who we are as a church and how we're organized and our history and all that. We're, our church is a very old church. For those of you who are visitors... We just celebrated our 60th anniversary on this plot of land. Um, we used to be down below the reservoir. They started in 1912. We had to move up here in uh, '62 so they could flood the reservoir. So we just had a big celebration for that. Okay, so uh, anyway, think about coming to the Inquirer's class if you're interested in learning more about our church. Okay, so we're in a series. We've been talking about the beauty of Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, we rarely use that language of beauty. But we should. We should use it more and more. Because uh, that's who He is. If you want a clear description of who God is and therefore who Jesus is, just look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thankfulness, self-control. Those are all pictures of who God is. God gives us gifts out of who He is. So in that, in that uh, Galatians 5 passage, that's the clearest, most succinct discussion description to me of who God is. Therefore, that's who Jesus is. So we're looking at Philippians from the inside out. In other words, every time we see one of the, the words that describe who God is, it all came from God. So when Paul says, for example, we talked about this in Philippians 1, he us love for the Philippians. Where does that come from? It comes from God. Love, joy, peace, patience. So we're looking at Philippians from the inside out. And the reason why we're doing that is we just finished a year-and-a-half study of the, the house that God is building, the spiritual house, the spiritual temple, and uh, we started a year-and-a-half ago in looking at Leviticus. And so now that we've built the house and have a picture of it, we're asking the question, as inhabitants of this house, that's us, we're all part of the temple, what does our responsibility look like? So we're using Philippians to kind of kick off that uh, part of it. So that's what we're doing. So, you may remember last week, we um, we talked about in, in Philippians 1, um, first of all, in Philippians 1, he talks about his own sacrifice, where he says uh, people are sharing Christ, some are doing it out of good motives, and some out of bad motives, and he said, so what? I don't care. As long as people are sharing Christ. That's what counts, proclaiming Christ. So he's sacrificing there for the sake of the Philippians. Then when we got to chapter 27 last week, we looked at, the beauty of suffering. And we ask the question, how on earth could suffering be considered beautiful? And in verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, for to you it has been granted, and that's the English word for the word, Greek word for grace. But we don't have an English word, a verb for grace. And so uh, we did in old English, but not in today's you may think of the older movies, she graced us with her presence, that kind of thing. But we don't have an English verb for grace, and so they put in the word granted. In other words, this is the grace of God, two things, that you believe in his name, Jesus, and that you suffer for his sake. And so all of a sudden, suffering is shown here to be an act of grace on God's part. So we wrestled last week with how on earth could good grace, I mean, could suffering be considered beautiful? Beautiful. And we gave several reasons. One is, its suffering is the language that we share with the world. We don't have to explain suffering to the world, do we? Doesn't matter which country you come from. They understand suffering. What they don't understand is how we respond in in grace and patience when that happens. So that's one of the reasons is because we get a chance to show the world what this new creation, this kingdom looks like. Remember, we've been building the picture that we are part of the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. So our reality is now the new creation. The problem is, is we're most comfortable in the old creation. We're most comfortable with the in nature. That's all we've ever known our whole lives. And so we're going to see in the passage today that it's very difficult to transition out of that up here into the new creation. That's a very difficult thing to do. So we have suffering. It gives us a a language to talk to the world about and demonstrate this new creation. Also, it builds your faith. Let's be honest. If your faith was never tested, how would you know it was real? How would you know? It'd only be up here. It's only when it's tested through suffering of some kind that it moves down into the conviction realm. And then the uh, third reason is because it's the basis for unity within a church. Can you imagine a church where there's never any need? We wouldn't need each other. We'd just all be individuals. One of the things that I get to see and our staff and elders get to see, we get to watch the Holy Spirit move throughout you. The congregation and I never know this week who's going to call me and say I just found out I had cancer, or who's going to call me and say I just uh, had a new granddaughter. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And so, as the Holy Spirit moves, that provides the basis for unity, and we're going to see that picture clearer today, even yet. So, their only hope for survival is unity may remember I I mentioned uh, Frank Thielman, I'm reading his commentary, talks about that the church in Philippi existed in a raging sea of antagonism. Well, you know what? That's us. We're no different. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells us. Nothing new under the sun. And we're watching Christianity become more and more opposed, aren't we? We're watching our country become more oppositional and even uh, hurtful. To Christians, I mean, I've read things online. We need to kill Christians. Okay, this goes back to the, to the uh, 1700s when the papers said we, we need, the Christian churches were saying we need to kill Mormons. Well, nothing new under the sun. We have opposition. We have antagonism. It's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow, uh, barring God's miraculous intervention. And so in the midst of this antagonism, they were at risk. And so their only hope of survival was Unity. We're approaching probably one of the most hotly contested elections coming up here. Just be honest with you, okay? Everybody's going to claim fraud on both sides. Everybody's going to want to claim victory. And you know what that means? We are always one step away as a church of this dividing because we have every denomination, we have every political party, we have all of that right here. We're always one policy away from splitting as a church. So I've learned over the years that one of my primary roles is to be the chief cheerleader of the church and keep you focused on important things, scripture, okay? It doesn't matter to me, I've told you that. I mean, at some level it does. I vote by conscience like you, but I don't care which political office is in party because I'm a citizen of heaven. We're gonna see that in Philippians 3. And uh, this place is not my home, not the way it's structured today it's not. So we're going to get right down into the nitty gritty of this today and take a look at this. So in the midst of this antagonism, Paul says this, this is where we finished last week in chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then do this. Okay, pause. These if statements, you can picture them as pleading. Think about a marriage. Some of you have been through this—a marriage that's that's beginning to dissolve and move in the wrong direction. And one spouse reaches to, out to the other one and says, "Don't we have something that we're building here? Didn't we didn't we fall in love at one point?" And so that's kind of what he's saying: is is if if we have something good, why are we looking at dividing here? So this is a plea to the church at Philippi. As we get into it, we're going to see that. They're on the verge of dividing in the midst of this sea of antagonism. They're surrounded by it. And we're always one step away from that. And uh, the answer there for their survival was unity. So if those things are true, he goes on in verse 2 and says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not uh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of someone else. Having the same love, like-minded, being one in spirit and of one mind. I've said many times that unity is not a function of your theological conviction. Unity is not the same as... uh, Um, believing and agreeing on everything. It's not. Unity is a conscious decision to put someone else first. So I've said, like I said, at Roe versus Wade and other other important places in our history, I'm not going to ask you to change your theological conviction. If you want to talk about it, we can talk over coffee. I'll be glad, glad to have a conversation. But I am asking you consistently to sacrifice for the sake of unity to put the other person first. I guarantee you the person sitting right next to you, even if you're married, you're going to find some place in theology where you don't agree. And you have to learn to set that aside for the sake of unity. Unity is a conscious decision to put others first. We see that on our elders. Our elders represent the congregation. We have every denomination on the elders. And we ask the same thing of the elders, and they've agreed to that by policy, that uh, we'll set aside our theological convictions except for our doctrinal statement. I've said for years, we have 10 statements. Somebody from Texas emailed me and said, I read your doctrinal statement. I only counted nine. What? Oh, we only have nine. (laughs) Can't count. That's why I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. Our nine statements, we will die for. Everything else, it's okay to sacrifice for unity, for the sake of unity. So this is what he's talking about. And how is this unity possible? He's about to give us the answer, and it's through sacrifice. Well, we've moved from suffering to sacrifice. They both play very critical roles in establishing unity within the church. How on earth is sacrifice going to lead to unity? Well, I just said it's part of God's grace. It leads to the strengthening of our faith. It leads to um, speaking the language of the world and having them look... It also gives us opportunities for service, to look at each other in our church and say someone's hurting. Some of you are hurting deeply, and you've experienced that kind of grace. You should all experience that from this church. We're not perfect, but we're moving in that direction. So then he comes to the key example, and this example is Christ. And this is the heart and soul of our theology, this text today. This text is about is probably the most writ- written upon. It's the most argued, the most studied, the most spoken about, and we're going to skip all of that academic stuff, which I love. If you want to know more, just have coffee or come. I'll give you one of my commentaries. You can read all the arguments. We're just going to work through the key principles to answer the question: How is sacrifice beautiful? Last week is how is suffering beautiful. Today it's how is sacrifice beautiful. Well, in verse 5, thank you, Tim, for reading this. In your relationships, therefore, doesn't occur in the NIV, but based on everything he just said, having the same love, the same mind, same spirit, if, if all of that is true, and it is, then please, 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 this is his plea, his pleading with the congregation. And I'm pleading with you. It's all true, please. In our relationships with one another, let's have the same mindset as Jesus. You see, he is the model for all that we do. All we have to do is look at Jesus, and we can capture a glimpse of what we are becoming, what we're going to be, and what we should be in our relationships with each other. I mean, think about the way Jesus, the affection that he shows the woman caught in adultery. No judgment, no shame, no condemnation. I mean, he goes after a chief tax collector and says, I'm going to eat at your house today. I'm going to become unclean, clean for you. I mean, I think of his love and affection that he shows all throughout his ministry to people around him. I love Luke 13 when he's in the synagogue teaching and somehow there's a woman there. Women weren't supposed to be there. They had their own space. And she's there and she's bent over for a long time, years. She can't even stand up and he stops teaching and he says, he calls her forward and says, come on, come up here. And he lays his hands on her and says, you're healed. Right there in the middle of teaching. I don't know if you saw Anders come up when he started and just give me a hug. I just love when Anders comes up and gives me a hug. Any of the kids can do it. It's great. Is there any greater picture of what we should be like as a church? It's not my teaching. You know, it's not that important. It's more important to love This guy, it's the young guy who needs it, and so we see this these reasons right there, but then he goes on, and we begin to get deeper into what is it that Jesus actually did. He goes on in verse six, this is talking about Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And this word is kind of hard to translate. It's grabbing on, it's stealing, it's thieving, it's holding on to. He could have stayed in the throne room. He didn't have to come down. But his love compelled him. And so he did not consider staying with the Father as important. We were more important. There it is. Sacrifice. This is what communion is all about. What did he do instead? Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing. You have no idea how many books and articles have been written on this phrase. He made himself nothing. That's why I talked to the chairman. Uh, Tim and I were talking recently. We were the chief slaves of the church because that's what Jesus became. That's our job, Become the chief slaves. He made himself nothing. Does that mean he's no longer God? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And it's a mystery. We'll never understand how he did it. But he decided to come down and live life just the way we live it. That means that somehow in his own ability, which is none of our abilities, he decided not to use his divine prerogatives. He didn't give them up. He's still God because that's how it starts out. Being in the very nature God, although he is still God, he didn't regard that uh, equality as critical. He was willing to come down and become a slave. He made himself nothing, he took the very nature of a servant or slave, same Greek word, he took the nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness, just like us, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, so how did he do that? I don't know how he did it, but what's the impact of it? Luke tells us that he, everything he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews tells us that he lived life just like us. He was tempted in every way, but he didn't sin. So if he could, you know, if he could just exercise his divine prerogatives, then I can't do that. He's not like me anymore. But then you argue, but wait a minute, didn't he read people's minds? Well, sure he did. He read the Pharisees' minds, but didn't Peter read the mind of, of uh, um, somebody? <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> yeah, this is being recorded, isn't it? <laughs> For all of eternity. They're going to hear me say that. Somebody. <laughs> Peter read the mind of Ananias and Sapphira. Didn't Jesus heal, uh, raise the dead? Yeah. Didn't Peter do that? Didn't Jesus heal the lame and the sick? Yeah, didn't Peter do that? You see, you don't have to be God to do miracles. You have to know God. And that's what he demonstrated. He lived under the power of the Holy Spirit his entire life because that's how we have to do it. That's why I could say to the, to the disciples, you saw the things I did? That's nothing. You're going to do more. Because they both serve the same God. He's still God. He could have done it like that. And that was Satan's temptation. His whole life was a temptation to, to use those divine prerogatives. Turn the stones into bread. Jump off the temple. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. did the centurion say upon the cross you're the messiah come down off the cross what do you say to peter when he cut off servants here peter don't you know i could call legions of angels like that and he voluntarily lived life just like us relying on the holy spirit to not only strengthen him but to communicate the wisdom of the father while he was in this limited state I don't know the day and the hour he said who touched me when the woman with the issue of blood touched him if he was living within his divine characteristics he would have known all that but he didn't and here it is right here this is the heart and soul of our theology but more important than that believe it or not more important than that this is the model of how we are to live with each other sacrifice sacrifice. And he goes over there and here's the reward. Here's the, um, the result, if you will. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. What's the name above every name? Yahweh, God's name. Exodus 3, he gave Moses his name. First time in history God ever gave out their name. No wonder they were so excited because our God spoke and he gave him his name. He gave him that name. That's the name he gave, Jesus. At the name of Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, there it is. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. Right out of the Old Testament. That's the result of sacrifice. To the glory of God the Father. This is the richest passage, one of the richest passages in the Bible, because it gives us the foundation for understanding all that happened. But more importantly than all of that, it gives us the model of how we are to live. Look at how it started. In your relationships with one one another, verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's why he wrote it. We have the pleasure of studying it, and it gives us insight, but that's not why he wrote it. He wrote it to show us how to treat each other right here. To sacrifice whatever it takes for the other person. Is the sacrifice beautiful? Yes, it is. Does the world understand true sacrifice? No, it doesn't. Sacrifice is not what you give up. That's not what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is what you give up that costs you dearly for someone else. That's what a sacrifice is. What you give up that costs you dearly for someone else. But he's not done there Therefore, based on this example of Christ, my dear friends, have you, as you have always obeyed, yeah, when I'm there, I get that, but even when I'm not there, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, you notice what he doesn't say? Continue to work for your salvation. Continue to work it out. This is without question the hardest part of this in our lives this time. Once you get to glory, we'll have figured it out. But not here. Why? Because our minds still belong to the old creation. That's all we know. That's what we're comfortable with. That's it. And the journey from moving to that which is no longer our reality to the new creation which is our reality is the hardest thing you're going to ever struggle with. It is. And you're going to struggle with it every day. You're going to struggle with it every time you lust after somebody. You're going to struggle with it every time you get angry. You're going to struggle with it every time suffering occurs. You're going to struggle with it every time you find out something debilitating is happening in your body. You're going to struggle with it every time you lose a friend, a wife. Some of you know the story. When I lost my first wife, I was holding her when her heart stopped. Of course, I started to cry my eyes out. But then I started to laugh. My friend with me said, Why are you laughing? The Lord just took away from me the most important person, and I still believe. See, that's what suffering does. My faith was real, and I believed it. And then I said, Not only that, but what kind of a God is it that would take away my best friend? I don't even know this God that I believe in. Not really. And that began a 40-year journey of studying as much as I could to figure out who this God is. That would take away my best friend. That's what suffering does. It shows you your faith is real. And as your faith becomes real, it makes you drive harder for him. So, work out your salvation, not work for Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You grew up in the old creation, now you're part of the new. Learn how to live that life. and That's going to take everything you have, including essentially the Spirit of God and patience to do that. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. This is what suffering is for, to fulfill His purpose good purpose, not only in your own personal lives, but in the community. Because if we don't have any suffering, guess what? We don't need each other. We're not in glory yet. One day we won't need suffering. But in a fallen world, we do, because our minds are still shaped according to the old creation. We need it. We need suffering to draw us together. This is what brings about unity, is that we run to each other's aid. Why is sacrifice a blessing? Many years ago, one of my good friends, her entire life, she's with the Lord now, but her entire life was in inner-city Denver working with drug addicts. Her entire life, she had nothing. And she came home one day, opened the refrigerator, and it had gone, power had gone out, everything's bad. So some of us got together and said, let's solve the problem. So we went down and bought a new refrigerator and filled it full of food. What was her result? What was her response? Tears of joy. What would happen... If we did nothing, she knows we have the means to do it, and nobody stepped up to help her. Fracture. Division. If you lose your job and you can't pay your salary, <clears throat> and you know that a bunch of us in the church can solve that problem like that, and we don't do anything, that's what happens coldness, hardness, fracture. Sacrifice is critical, absolutely essential to bind the church together in this part of our history, before glory. And so sacrifice leads to joy if we sacrifice on behalf of someone else. If you're in trouble and we come alongside to help you, that leads to joy. When I was first considering this church among other churches, when I got the packet, first thing I did was look at the financial statements. I wanted to see how much money went out the door. I was astounded. Do you know what the current giving is in the church in America? It's less than half percent now. And this church is over 20%. I'm not boasting. That's long before I came. But I can tell you what, I'm, I'm committed to maintain that. You guys just all approved the budget, which increased our missions to allow us to do that. Thank you very much. Over 20% of what we take in goes out to help people. Our benevolence fund gave $100,000 this past year. Praise God for that. Isn't that worth something? You guys are quiet. Is that worth anything? Yeah. Yeah, tell God thanks. And you too. I think that's wonderful. Our food bank, our giving to missions. This is sacrifice, and I know you sacrifice, too. But he goes on. Okay, now that we laid the foundation of what you're supposed to be like, what is the first thing he says? Quit complaining. (laughs) Verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Okay, why? When you complain, you're telling the world you don't believe, you really don't believe your own theology of God's sovereignty. Remember I told you last week, the priests, when they were in the temple... In the Mosaic law, when they were serving God in the temple, they were not allowed to show any grief. Now think about Ezekiel: God took his life, his wife, I mean, took his wife away, said, "Tonight I'm going to take the life of your wife." I wonder what that conversation was like. And he wasn't allowed to show grief. Why? Because they represent God, and it's a statement that I don't trust God's sovereignty. You know what the punishment was? Death for the priests that grieved while he's on the temple, in the tibble. You're not allowed to show grief because God is the one that's sovereign and he decides. Remember Job's last words? Where are you, God? If you would only come and talk to me and listen to my argument, you would repent. So God, with a twinkle in his eye, shows up in a whirlwind. Here I am. Let's have the conversation. Tell me about the creation of the world. I mean, you were there, right? And you know all the names of the animals, don't you? And he goes through two chapters of humbling Job. And what is Job's response? He said, I repent in dust and ashes because I have spoken about things too wonderful for me to understand. And that's what he's talking about right here. Do everything without grumbling or complaining, the verse before, to fulfill the good purpose so that you may be blameless and pure. You may not know, and often you won't know, why you do struggle. But I can tell you it's for good reasons. He doesn't say rejoice because of the suffering. Rejoice because of the impact that the suffering has in the church around us. Okay, I'm not going to read it, but he gives us two examples. Well, Paul is the example before Jesus. He's sacrificed. Then he talks about Jesus, but then he gives us two more examples in the next paragraph. Timothy, I hoped in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That's sacrifice. Then he goes on in the next paragraph. I think it necessary to send back to Epaphroditus. He was sick unto death, and you were very worried. He wants to come himself. So you, he can say, look what God did. He healed me. He was sick, he says. He almost died for the work of Christ. That's sacrifice. He gives us two examples of sacrifice. So you have Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, all modeling their lives after Jesus. Okay. Some of you have been around long enough. When I pull out my stool, it's time to have a pastoral conversation. Take off the teacher hat, and I have a question for you. I'm going to read to you a verse out of Matthew. It's out of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he dug up this treasure. Oh, my goodness. And he buried it again. And then he went and sold everything. All he had. And then went and bought the field. But then he gives us a second parable right after that. Again, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He finds one. He's opening it up. All these cl- Oh, there's, wow, look at this pearl. Look at this. He went away and sold everything, and he bought it. So here's a question I have for you. What's keeping you from selling everything, selling out to Jesus? What's keeping you? Okay, this is a great church. I work with young pastors all the time in the doctoral program at Denver Seminary. You know what? They're terrified of their boards. They're nervous about their congregations. Uh, they've never been taught in seminary. We study greek Hebrew and theology, okay? They've never been taught how to love their people and not worry about it. You see, here's what happens in most churches. When things go south, who's the sacrificial lamb? They know it. And they've never been taught anything about leadership. And They don't know what to do, and they're nervous. So I get to hear for 15 years... All these congregations, they're critical, they're, they're harsh, you know? We don't have that. This is a great church. It's a wonderful church. It's got to be the best church in the world. I believe it. So why I love coming up here and being your pastor week after week. I live for it. Maybe only one or two days in my life have I walked from my house over here and was really, oh, really? I got to go see Jude again? I gotta go see Scott Price again. I gotta face the elders. No, I don't, that never happens. I get up and as as tired as I may be, when I start start the journey across the parking lot, I get filled with joy and excitement. But here's the question. As good as we are, can we be better? Have we achieved perfection? No, we haven't. Have you ever had the thought, Lord, is is there is there more to life than this? Is this it? Is this all there is? If this is it, I'm pretty disappointed. You ever think that? One of the theologians I was reading this week because I'm teaching this class on Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit keeps us in suspense on purpose. That's the magnet that keeps us moving forward. As good as it is, we all have the thought, is this it? Is there more coming? I mean, I'll admit I'm a blessing junkie. I'll admit it. I've seen way too many blessings in my lifetime. And that just compels me to search for more. And that comes through faithfulness. What's keeping you? What's keeping you from digging deeper? Is it greed? Is it power? I love Mark 10. Three stories back to back in Mark 10. Capture me. The first one is the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do? Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't commit murder. He said, I've done all that. He said, oh, great. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he walked away sad. There's a person motivated by greed. And then right after that, immediately, he tells the disciples as he goes away, it's hard for the rich man to enter. By the way, I'm going to Jerusalem where they're going to flog me and beat me up and crucify me and I'm going to rise again on the third day. You would think they would go, what? What did John say? James and John say, hey, uh, we have something we want you to do for us. And Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? And they said, when you enter your kingdom, we want to be on the left and the right. He just told him he's going to die. And that's what they're thinking of, power? So he'd gone from a person focused on money to a person focused, to people focused on power. His own disciples are crying out loud. And it's not Judas focused on power. You know who the third one is? He's walking down the road and blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. And he goes, what's that commotion? He's blind. I hear something. Oh, Jesus is coming. Son of David, son of David, heal me. Son of David, son of David. And they try to get him quiet because he he won't stop yelling, son of David, son of David. So Jesus said, what's going on over there? They said, well, that's one of the blind guys. He goes, well, bring him here. So he brings him here, and he asks the same question he asks the disciples. What would you like me to do for you? I, I know he's got a twinkle in his eye. And he says, he goes, Lord, I I just want to see and heal them. And he went and followed him from then on, gave up everything, not that he had much. Church tradition says he became one of the leaders in the church. So where are you in those stories? Are you the one captured by the money? It's mine. Are you the one captured by the power are you the one that's just, Lord, I want to see? I just want to see. Listen to these words. Thielman quotes uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, if you're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, you should buy his book and read it. Read the uh, book called Bonhoeffer, his Autobiography. He was one of the few German pastors that stood up against Hitler during World War II, and it cost him his life. So he wrote a book called Life Together, And he talks about Christian communities and eradicating selfish ambition. And here's his principles. Number one, hold your tongue. Isn't that good? Don't complain. Even more than that, hold your tongue. Refuse to speak uncharitably about a fellow brother or sister. Number two, cultivate humility as a church. Cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that you and me, like Paul, are the greatest sinners on the earth. Don't walk away with the thought, yeah, I'm pretty good. No, you're not. Apart from the cross, you are absolutely nothing. Remember that. Every time you lust after a woman, every time you have one of those temptations, there's that working out your salvation. Then he goes on, number three, listen. Listen long and patiently so that the person you're talking to will understand that you care about them. Don't try to sell them Jesus. Okay, we don't need a marketing approach to sell Jesus. They're going to come if they feel this from you. What's different about you? Number four, refuse. Now, this is a good one. Refuse to consider your time and calling so valuable that you cannot be interrupted. We try our best. Some of you in here, we have failed. Maybe we heard about it afterwards. Maybe we maybe we, we, just missed it or overlooked it. But we try our hardest to come running. When Lauren Fisher, when her husband, John, I was talking to him in Iron Hour, had a cold, told me that he had a bad cold. And... Uh, Going to go to the doctor sometime later. I'm driving to a coffee with somebody, and she calls me and says, "It's not a cold; it's cancer, lung cancer." They're admitting him to the hospital. Made a U-turn, called the other people, say, "I'm sorry, I can't meet." Drove straight down there, opened the door for the oncologist to walk in and say, "John, I have no good news. Your cancer is so spread; we're not even going to do a biopsy. You'll be dead before we get the results back." Those words. Here is. Here is pamphlets for palliative care and for a hospice. you got to decide. And he said, how long do you think I have? And he said, two weeks. That fast. Reconsider what's important to you on your time. You see, I can tell what your priorities are. Give me your checkbook and your calendar. I can tell like that. That's why I looked at the financial statements of the church. I can tell what their priorities are by looking where where the money's going. But then he goes on. Bear the burden of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by preserving their freedom by allowing them to sin. You have the freedom to sin. If you're going to be idiotic enough to do it, do it. You'll experience grace. And then when life gets really hard, You're going to come to one of us, and then we'll teach you how to experience joy. That's choosing to stop sinning, by the way. Declare God's word to your fellow believers when they need to hear it. One of the ladies that listened to the podcast emailed me and said, I'm 27, two daughters. My husband came to Christ in December. He's been praying for me every day that I would come to Christ. We've been listening to your sermons. Two weeks ago, my husband died unexpectedly. Last night, I got on my knees and gave my life to Christ. I have no idea where to even start. Would you help me? So I gave her some thoughts, but one of them was, find a verse that you can cling to. Mine has been my whole life, Psalm 3418. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The next day on social media, she posted this verse. Did I have a new verse to help me through? Declare God's word to fellow believers when they need it. And the last one is understand that Christian authority, which is all of us, is characterized by service and sacrifice. That's what a good church is. That's why Tim and I, Chairman and I always agree, we're the chief servants or slaves of the church. We try to be. That's what leadership is. So I I go back to the question. What's keeping you? What's in the way? Is it security, money, Sex? Power? Greed? What is it? What's keeping you from taking that very next step to take this church, as good as it is, it's flawed, and let's make it a little bit better? And let's not divide over this coming election. Don't worry about the election. Care about the people that are terrified right outside these walls. Father, thank you. For sending us your son, for teaching us humility, gentleness, all the things that go with your character. Thank you for teaching us to be loving. Help us, Lord, to use your example, Jesus, in our lives and our day to day behavior with ourselves, with each other. To use that example and to work out our salvation. God, it's hard. Give us more of your spirit. Lord, give us the wisdom to understand what to do and the courage to do it in faith with each other. And then, Father, I, I just plead with you that you would use our church to reach this county for you. So many people everywhere I go that are terrified, angry, upset, but have no hope. Help us. In your Son's name, we ask these things. Amen. Can i going to ask the officers to come take the offering. Uh, as I said, thanks so much for just being generous and taking care of us. I'm very grateful.